The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. He was born on the eve of a pointless and devastating war, World War I, to French parents living in Algiers. His father, a military veteran and wine shipping clerk, was recalled to that war and died before his youngest son turned one. Albert Camus never knew his father. In fact, he only knew two things about him, and one of them was wrong. He believed his father had been a first-generation emigre to Algeria after starting life as an Alsatian. In fact, it was his great-grandfather who had first moved the family to Africa, and he had come from Bordeaux. The other salient fact that Camus heard was that his father witnessed a public execution which so revulsed him he became physically ill. The story, brief as it was, turned out to be formative. Camus returned to it when writing his novel The Stranger, and the themes it brought with it, a questioning of justice, of the meaning of guilt, of man's treatment of fellow man, those were themes in Camus' mind for the rest of his life until his tragic death in a car accident at the age of 46, an accident that some believed, and some still say, was orchestrated by the KGB. Camus was the second youngest person ever to win the Nobel Prize for Literature, having won it two years before his death at the age of 44, only Rudyard Kipling, who won it at age 42, was younger. Camus accepted the prize with humility, feeling that he had a great life stretched out before him, that he was in mid-career. That turned out not to be so. In this great shining light of mid-20th century France, this philosopher with movie star looks, this writer, that's how he viewed himself as a writer, became an example of his own absurdist worldview. What is the point of a meaningless and tragic world? He was perhaps the most famous existentialist novelist in the world, with only Jean-Paul Sartre as a contender for that distinction, and yet Albert Camus rejected that label. He wasn't an existentialist, he said. That wasn't the right word for him. That wasn't an apt description. He and Sartre had a feud, like the feud of brothers who open a business together and have a falling out. A feud of equals, of rivals, more filled with disappointments and jealousy than hatred or indifference. Lenin and McCartney, or McCartney and Harrison, maybe. They recognized themselves in one another. They needed one another. Even after Camus died, Sartre said that his eyes were the ones Sartre imagined looking at his work. Sartre, possessed by self-assurance, assuming the tone of being the smartest one in the room, always, confessed that with every publication, he found himself wondering what Camus thought of it. What's he thinking of it right now? was the question that would run through Sartre's mind. And when Camus died, Sartre set aside their petty differences, the old and pointless grudges and bickering, and wrote, quote, He represented in our time the latest example of that long line of moralists, whose works constitute perhaps the most original element in French letters. His obstinate humanism, narrow and pure, austere and sensual, waged an uncertain war against the massive and formless events of the time. But on the other hand, through his dogged rejections, he reaffirmed at the heart of our epoch, against the Machiavellians and against the idol of realism, the existence of the moral issue. In a way, he was that resolute affirmation. Anyone who read or reflected encountered the human values he held in his fist. He questioned the political act. One had to avoid him or fight him. He was indispensable 
to that tension which makes intellectual life what it is. End quote. One had to avoid him or fight him. And now we celebrate and learn from him too. And my listeners have been clamoring to hear more about him, who he was, what he stood for, what he wrote about. The Stranger, sure, a lot of people encounter that in high school. But didn't he also write a novel called The Plague? Can we use that to get us through our current pandemic, our current quarantine, our current weird status as passive fighters? Yes, that's the contradiction in a war against something that is both external and internal. We will see. Albert Camus, today on the History of Literature. we go. Just take a sip of coffee. I'm Jack Wilson, your host. Coffee's appropriate today, right? We're traveling back to France, the Parisian cafes. Welcome to the podcast. How are you, everyone? Here in America, we are still stuck indoors, battling our desire to go outside, knowing that to do so is to put ourselves and our fellow citizens at risk. We're doing what we can to stave off boredom, to fight depression, to stay productive, to keep things on track as best we can. It's not going great, frankly. We could do better. That's a great theme today, doing better, because our subject, Albert Camus, was a believer in doing better. He fought for human beings all his life in his own particular way. He had personal flaws. He had limitations. Even as a writer, there were things he didn't do, didn't attempt them, though that was more by design than by inability, I think more of a personal preference. We'll get to all of that. But first, let's hear a few emails. First up, our old friend Joan checks in. Subject, Yi Yoon Lee and Kate Chopin. Dear Jack, thank you for the Kate Chopin episode, which I suggested. I had never read Desiree's Baby and was surprisingly surprised at the ending. Call me gullible, but I honestly didn't see it coming. This afternoon, I walked 2.3 miles to the edge of town and back, listening to the podcast on Yi Yoon Lee, beginning with your discussion, RE Breaking Bad, and Better Call Saul. My walk ended before the podcast did, so I have 14 minutes left. Yi Yoon Lee's short story is marvelous, economical, but vivid. I want to share my walk with you. Within the first 10 minutes, a fat black spider ran across the sidewalk, hastening to get from one side to the other. Soon I spotted a tall man approaching. I mentally noted that I should step to the grass as we passed, but he crossed the road first and gave me both a smile and a wave of the hand. I peeked over my shoulder and saw him crossing back a few steps later. Next, a young couple, Daddy pushing a baby carriage and Mom holding the leash of a tiny dog. As we approached, I did my thing and stepped onto the grass. The bearded dad smiled at me. The mom averted her eyes. Finally, a lady runner, ponytail flying. She did not look my way as I gave her the space to run. This is a strange new world, one which I cannot recognize. I feel like the spider, running from the familiar to the unknown, like a character trapped in a science fiction novel. You're great. Thanks for what you do. Cheers, Joan. Well, what a nice email, and what a vivid description of our new Uncanny world. We are indeed spiders, aren't we? Survival instincts are kicking in. We scurry around, hatching plots, but also 
being very insignificant. Spiders are devious. They think, they plan, they spin webs and catch flies. They eat their prey. They're very, very smart. Charlotte is a smart spider. That's how we think of her. Classic by E.B. White. And yet, there's also the George Bailey sense of spider from It's a Wonderful Life, accusing Mr. Potter. Well, listen for yourself. Oh, no, no, wait a minute here. Wait a minute. I don't need 24 hours. I, I don't have to talk to anybody. I know right now. And the answer is no, no. Doggone it. You sit around here and you spin your little webs and you think the whole world revolves around you and your money. Well, it doesn't, Mr. Potter. In the, in the whole vast configuration of things, I'd say you were nothing but a scurvy little spider. You, and that goes for you, too. And it goes for you, too. <laughs> a scurvy little spider. I spent most of my day in the basement underground, a place that spiders love. And I know they love it because I am constantly cleaning cobwebs from the ceiling of this very room here at the Jack Wilson studio. Some of you have asked how the staff is doing. They're getting used to working remotely. I don't make them come in. That would be uh, a danger. I'm not willing to put them to that. But then again, it's not easy having 15 to 20 employees working remotely trying to put this thing together. So we are doing the best we can. My apologies for any audio infelicities you might be hearing. We're trying to work all the bugs out here. Speaking of bugs... Those spiders are probably somewhere over my head right now watching me record this, sitting and planning, thinking that they're in charge. But they're not in charge, are they? They're resourceful, yes, and they spin their webs, and they can do that for good or for ill. But in the vast scheme of things, they're insignificant. I can wipe them away with a sweep of my hand. Or they might live forever, live a full and happy life. And in that... I'm whatever force you want to call me. It's a godlike power I have. Maybe I'm a disease, a pandemic. Maybe that's how they view me. Maybe I'm a politician. Maybe I'm a world leader. Maybe I'm fate. Maybe I'm death itself. I don't like killing spiders. I'm with Gary Schneider, the beat poet who maybe wasn't such a beat poet, a great nature poet who wrote that haiku I've never forgotten, one of the few American haikus I actually like. Don't worry, spider. I keep house casually. Love that poem. Spiders are murderers. They kill flies and eat them. They're cold-blooded murderers. There's no other way to put it. Homicide artists. And yet, well, I guess it's not homicide, is it? Insecticide artists, anyway. And yet I show them mercy. I gather them up like a Buddhist monk. I carry them to the door, cradled in my little hand and set them outside, gently. And then I go eat Popeye's chicken because it tastes so good. I'm full of contradictions, aren't I? I guess I am. I won't quote Whitman again because you've all heard it. You've all heard me say it a bunch. But you know the quote I mean. Ah, we're doing our best here, Joan. Some of us cross the street with a friendly wave. Some of us go jogging by, ponytail flying. And all of us essential to the plan. And all of us completely insignificant. I feel like Camo would have approved. Next up is from Elizabeth. Subject, appreciation and suggestion. Hello, Jack. I really enjoy your podcast. 
Given the inconsistency of my financial life, I usually do not subscribe to podcasts, but yours is so special to me, I just could not resist. I also bought you a few cups of coffee this month just out of appreciation. Thank you. Elizabeth did that over at patreon.com slash literature and historyofliterature.com slash shop, where you can buy me a virtual coffee, which is very much appreciated. Back to the email. You probably already thought of this, but I was wondering if you could do a special History of Literature podcast about books influenced by or about plague-like illnesses. I am thinking of books such as Death in Venice, Love in the Time of Cholera, Pale Horse, Pale Rider, etc. I'm sure there are many more examples to choose from. You see, I'm not much of a reader myself. Instead, I am an old lady farmer. I am a retired teacher of general subjects like biology and anatomy, definitely not literature. In my retirement, I have settled hobbit-like into a comfortable routine of rigorous farm work during the day, with evenings dedicated to dabbling with my paintbrush, during which I often listen to your podcast. Perhaps I love your podcast because I used to read quite a lot in my younger days. Someday it would be nice to have the free time to include the pursuit of literature into my life once again. Until then, I am satisfied listening to you and your guests' commentary and readings while I relax into my artwork. Thanks again, and keep up the good work. Elizabeth. Wow. Elizabeth, thank you for the email. I have this collection of mental images, people who are listening to the show around the world and who have told me where they are and what they're doing while they listen. Now I have a new one. A hobbit-like old lady farmer. And I say that with very deep affection and respect. What could be greater or more lovable than an old lady farmer, a retired teacher who lives like a hobbit and works hard during the day? tilling the soil and harvesting the crops, and dabbling with her paintbrush at night. It's like a life out of a dream. And to make the dream complete, or to make it my perfect dream, this teacher slash agrarian slash painter slash hobbit is listening to my show. Dreams can come true. (laughs) Elizabeth, best wishes, and thank you for the email. And yes, indeed, We have pandemics on the mind, as you've probably heard with our episodes on Pale Horse, Pale Rider and Speech Sounds by Octavia Butler, and perhaps above all, our show today with Albert Camus, the author of The Plague. You could also go back to our King Lear episode, Shakespeare Wrote King Lear, while in quarantine. There we go. What are we getting done? (laughs) Don't be too hard on yourself. You're doing what you can, I'm sure. Okay, let's take a quick break and then dive into the life and works of Albert Camus. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. 
The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Camus grew up in French Algiers. After his father died, he and his older brother and his mother moved in with his grandmother and his mother's uncle in a cramped apartment. His mother was illiterate and partially deaf, and she had trouble speaking. She worked in a factory that made ammunition, and she made extra money by cleaning homes. They had no bathroom, no electricity, and no running water. Later in life, Camus would look back on these days with pain and affection. He enjoyed sports especially soccer, where he was a good goalie. He said his experience as a goalie helped him in the literary world of Paris once he got there because he learned, as a goalie, that the ball never arrives from where the goalie expects it to. A little dig at the cutthroat world of Parisian cafe culture, I think. But how did he get there? We left a little boy with his deaf mother and some other adults living in an unpromising environment. Mere survival would be an achievement, let alone the Nobel Prize for Literature. The answer was that he had amazing teachers. He had talent, and they recognized it. He got a scholarship to attend a good high school, and the teachers there encouraged him further. He thanked them by name in his later speeches as he collected awards. They exposed him to literature like Proust and Verlaine and André Gide and Henri Bergson. This is in the early 1930s now, and he started writing articles for a literary journal. He went to college, still in Algiers, he got married to his first wife, and they got divorced. Camus disapproved of marriage his entire life, even when he was married, and maybe especially then. He got married and divorced twice, and he was in love with a thousand women. It was not unusual for him to write three passionate letters to three different lovers, back to back to back, stealing time away from his family to do so. I don't think he ever fully reconciled how much pain he could cause for him, this was the natural order of things, that his desire for love was such a positive force in his eyes, there could be nothing negative about it. It's what you say when you don't believe in monogamy, I guess. In those early years, he also had a Bartleby-like job. In one of them, or a few of them actually, in one of them he recorded and sorted meteorological data. In another, he was working in the Auto License Bureau. This is the world of Kafka, but there are sharp distinctions between Kafka and Camus. Camus not quite the same as we'll get to later. Bartleby was probably closer to Camus and Kierkegaard and Nietzsche, though we're jumping ahead of ourselves. Suffice it to say, the man who later became famous writing about Sisyphus and about the absurdism of everyday existence did not last long at the meteorological data plant or the auto license factory. He also started some activities that would mark most of his adult life. He briefly joined the Communist Party. 
He was active in the theater, including producing a play that he wrote about a workers' revolt. If anything can compete with absurdism in Camus' world, it's the concept of revolt. He wrote a dissertation on philosophical themes, the influence of the Neoplatonists on the work of St. Augustine. Augustine was another spiritual ancestor of Camus. This is as much to do with style and temperament as it is with the substance of his philosophy. Camus was not a strong Christian, though he considered the teachings and philosophy carefully and often engaged with those themes. But Augustine is a moral thinker, as a semi-autobiographical writer, as a man wrestling with the issues on his mind, the moral issues and how they affect his actions, that's where we see the inklings of Camus. It's why Melville was on his mind, too, and Nietzsche and Kierkegaard, and to that we can add Pascal and Montaigne and others. On his dissertation, one of his professors wrote, more a writer than a philosopher. That's how Camus viewed himself all his life, fitting into the tradition of philosophical writers like Kafka and Dostoevsky and Melville and Stendhal in the world of fiction, and perhaps even more the essayists like Kierkegaard and Nietzsche. His project was not a project like Tolstoy or Balzac or Henry James to record the world into a naturalistic, realistic novel form. And it was not a project like Kant or Sartre to establish a coherent philosophical system. His philosophy was more like moral insight in trying to establish truths about human behavior or the human condition. He believed that life was absurd, but this was not inherent in man or in the world, but in the way human beings interacted with the world. We might as well talk about absurdism now, if we'll put off the concept of revolt for a little bit. Absurdism, for Camus, it's not exactly Kafka. It's not that the modern world is so full of contradictions and pointless endeavors that there's nothing left but for us to laugh at our own confusion. There are contradictions, there's pointlessness, it's ridiculous, but that's not the whole point. It's not just absurd in the sense of goofy or comedic, it's tragic. It's our human desire for meaning and purpose bumping up against an indifferent universe. The universe is silent to our questions, silent to our suffering. It does not care. We want it to care. It doesn't. We want to matter. We don't. That's deeper than just, we have so many layers of bureaucracy, we can't breathe and be ourselves. It's, we want to matter, and we don't, and we can't even fool ourselves because we've, we're given these pointless tasks. So what are we to do? Let's save what are we to do for a moment, because I'm getting ahead of myself. He attempted to answer those questions, but let's talk instead about The Stranger, his first novel, his first major work. It was published in 1942. It established his themes, his outlook, his style, everything. It established Camus, who he was and how he wrote and what concerned him. It's an incredible book, deeply philosophical and yet deceptively simple. The story can be told in a few sentences. A man's mother dies. He attends her funeral. Later, he kills an Arab man who has been in a conflict with a friend. After the murder, he is sentenced to death and executed. All this in a first-person style, highly impassive, in which he's describing himself and his actions almost as if they're happening to someone else as if he's estranged from his own body. There's Hemingway there, Hemingway plus Melville, and I think it owes a bit of a debt to Karl Marx and probably a hundred other philosophers and thinkers and novelists and writers. It's as if he devoured it all, all the currents of thought relevant at the time, and came up with something completely new, but utterly inevitable. 
He was a writer. That's what writers do. Not philosophers, not historians, not even novelists. A writer. A writer like Voltaire, a thinker, a critic, a cry in the wild night of the soul. Sartre got all this right away. He was a very shrewd critic, Jean-Paul was. Look, the man was brilliant, literary critic, cultural critic, even, I guess, as an author himself and as a philosopher. He was just brilliant. Not perfect, very imperfect person, but a brilliant mind. And he read Camus, and he was like, I don't know how to put this exactly. You could see him saying, oh, this guy's here. He's here. He's here. This is what I'm doing, too. But he's doing it a little differently, and maybe he's better. It's John Lennon, age 16, lead singer and only real musician in The Quarrymen, meeting Paul McCartney, who can tune a guitar, which was impressive to John and his mates, but who can also sit down at a piano and bang out a melody and sing like an angel, a voice gifted by the gods with range, with power, with growl when he wants, rock and roll growl, and sweetness for the ballads can do whatever he wants with his voice. And John stood there listening and said, he's as good as me. Should I let him in the band? If so, I might no longer be the best. But if I keep him out, I stay the king, but maybe the band's not as good. There are other meetings like this in history, other encounters, other moments when talent recognizes talent. Ezra Pound read T.S. Eliot and thought, what the hell, how did he do this by himself? He came to the same conclusions we did. And on the one hand, that's a threat, right? We're not as original as we thought. This dude from St. Louis was doing the same thing. On the other hand, it's an affirmation. Wait, he's this good, and he has the same ideas and themes and approach? That confirms that what we're trying to do with our poetry makes sense. We're not just out on some crazy theoretical limb We're fitting into the natural evolution of poetry, the course that this river should run, the natural evolution of the poetic form that gets moved along by poets reading what we're all reading, all our predecessors, and trying to do something new and different, and also responding to our era. David Letterman was the natural product of a generation reacting to the humor and show business of a Johnny Carson, and Conan O'Brien and Jon Stewart were the products of watching David Letterman. Or how about Zora Neale Hurston and Langston Hughes with their encounter, which we talked about with Yuval Taylor? Or David Foster Wallace and Jonathan Franzen? Or Richard Ford and Raymond Carver? That's kind of like Sartre reading Camus. He got him. And yet, he had to draw a few lines, too. John wasn't going to start slavishly worshipping Paul. He had to be a rival, as well as a collaborator, as well as an admirer, as well as a friend. He had to up his game. You get the feeling Sartre was thinking that too as he read Camus. I better up my game. So let's do this. Let's travel through time to the French cafes of the 1940s. We'll listen to Camus reading the opening pages of The Stranger with a translation that I will read. Then we'll, the French one, the Frenchman reading, that is Camus. The English version is Jack Wilson. Then we'll come back with Sartre's reaction to it and more about Camus, including his work... The plague.
Aujourd'hui, maman est morte, ou peut-être hier, je ne sais pas. J'ai reçu un télégramme de l'asile. Mother died today. Or maybe yesterday, I can't be sure. The telegram from the home says, Your mother passed away. Funeral tomorrow. Deep sympathy. Which leaves the matter doubtful. It could have been yesterday. The home for aged persons is at Marengo, some 50 miles from Algiers. With the two o'clock bus, I should get there well before nightfall. Then I can spend the night there, keeping the usual vigil beside the body, and be back here by tomorrow evening. I have fixed up with my employer for two days' leave. Obviously, under the circumstances, he couldn't refuse. Still, I had an idea, he looked annoyed, and I said without thinking, Sorry, sir, but it's not my fault, you know. Afterwards, it struck me I needn't have said that. I had no reason to excuse myself. It was up to him to express his sympathy and so forth. Probably he will do so the day after tomorrow, when he sees me in black. For the present, it's almost as if mother weren't really dead. The funeral will bring it home to me, put an official seal on it, so to speak. I took the two o'clock bus. It was a blazing hot afternoon. I'd lunched, as usual, at Celeste's restaurant. Everyone was most kind, and Celeste said to me, there's no one like a mother. When I left, they came with me to the door. It was something of a rush, getting away, as at the last moment I had to call in at Emmanuel's place to borrow his black tie and mourning band. He lost his uncle a few months ago. I had to run to catch the bus. I suppose it was my hurrying like that, what with the glare off the road and from the sky, the reek of gasoline, and the jolts that made me feel so drowsy. Anyhow, I slept most of the way. When I woke, I was leaning against a soldier. He grinned and asked me if I'd come from a long way off, and I just nodded to cut things short. I wasn't in a mood for talking. That's the beginning of The Stranger, read by the author Albert Camus. You hear the impassivity there, which marks the book from the beginning. Mother died today, or maybe it was yesterday, I can't be sure. All the way to its end, where the killing and the planned execution, witnessed by an indifferent universe, are in a kind of flat monotone. Is that the reaction we're talking about? Is that how humans should respond? We want meaning, and the world doesn't give it to us. Does that make us numb? Is that the only conceivable response? Camus didn't think so. Let's take a quick break and we'll hear how Jean-Paul Sartre reacted to The Stranger, and then we'll hear about the rest of the life of Albert Camus, as well as his responses to this human dilemma. That's all coming up after this. Sartre recognized what Camus was doing both in The Stranger and in his essay, The Myth of Sisyphus, which came out the same year. In that essay, Camus explores the notion of the absurd and, quote, the total absence of hope, which has nothing to do with despair, a continual refusal which must not be confused with renouncement, and a conscious dissatisfaction, end quote. 
Here's Sartre writing about the themes and the style of Camus and trying to place him within a canon of writers. Who were Camus' predecessors? Who thought like this? Who wrote like this? Where did Camus fit? Quote, The turn of his reasoning, the clarity of his ideas, the cut of his expository style, and a certain kind of solar, ceremonious, and sad somberness all indicate a classic temperament, a man of the Mediterranean. His very method, quote, only through a balance of evidence and lyricism shall we attain a combination of emotion and lucidity, end quote, recalls the old passionate geometries of Pascal and Rousseau and relate him, for example, not to a German phenomenologist or a Danish existentialist, but rather to Marat, that other Mediterranean from whom, however, he differs in many respects. But Camus would probably be willing to grant all this. To him, originality means pursuing one's ideas to the limit. It certainly does not mean making a collection of pessimistic maxims. The absurd, to be sure, resides neither in man nor in the world, if you consider each separately. But since man's dominant characteristic is being in the world, the absurd is, in the end, an inseparable part of the human condition. Thus, the absurd is not, to begin with, the object of a mere idea. It is revealed to us in a doleful illumination. Getting up, tram, four hours of work, meal, sleep, and Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, in the same routine, from Sisyphus. And then, suddenly, the setting collapses, and we find ourselves in a state of hopeless lucidity. If we are able to refuse the misleading aid of religion or of existential philosophies, we then possess certain basic, obvious facts. The world is chaos, a divine equivalence born of anarchy. Tomorrow does not exist, since we all die. In a universe suddenly deprived of light and illusions, man feels himself a stranger. This exile is irrevocable, since he has no memories of a lost homeland and no hope of a promised land. The reason is that man is not the world. Quote, If I were a tree among other trees, this life would have a meaning, or rather this problem would have none, for I would be part of this world. I would be this world against which I set myself with my entire mind. It is preposterous reason which sets me against all creation. End quote. This explains in part the title of our novel, The Stranger is Man Confronting the World. Camus might as well have chosen the title of one of George Gissing's works, Born in Exile. The stranger is also man among men. There are days when you find that the person you've loved has become a stranger. The stranger is, finally, myself in relation to myself. That is, natural man in relation to mind. Quote, the stranger who, at certain moments, confronts us in a mirror. Quote, that was also from the myth of Sisyphus. But that is not all. There is a passion of the absurd. The absurd man will not commit suicide. He wants to live without relinquishing any of his certainty, without a future, without hope, without illusion, and without resignation either. He stares at death with passionate attention, and this fascination liberates him. He experiences the divine irresponsibility of the condemned man. End quote. That's Sartre wrestling with the themes in Camus. But he also tried to find a home for Camus as a writer. Which writers was he following? How did this style come about? What did it all mean? Here he is again. Quote, what is this new technique? 
It's Kafka written by Hemingway, I was told. I confess that I have found no trace of Kafka in it. Camus' views are entirely of this earth, and Kafka is the novelist of impossible transcendence. For him, the universe is full of signs that we cannot understand. There is a reverse side to the decor. For Camus, on the contrary, the tragedy of human existence lies in the absence of any transcendence. Quote, I do not know whether this world has a meaning that is beyond me, but I do know that I am unaware of this meaning, and that, for the time being, it is impossible for me to know it. What can a meaning beyond my condition mean to me? I can understand only in human terms. I understand the things I touch, things that offer me resistance. End quote. He is not concerned, then, with so ordering words as to suggest an inhuman, undecipherable order. The inhuman is merely the disorderly, the mechanical. There is nothing ambiguous in his work, nothing disquieting, nothing hinted at. The stranger gives us a succession of luminously clear views. If they bewilder us, it is only because of their number and the absence of any link between them. Camus likes bright mornings, clear evenings, and relentless afternoons. His favorite season is Algiers' eternal summer. Night has hardly any place in his universe. When he does talk of it, it is in the following terms, quote, I awakened with stars about my face. Country noises reached my ears. My temples were soothed by odors of night, earth, and salt. The wonderful peace of that sleepy summer invaded me like a tide. End quote from the stranger. The man who wrote these lines is as far removed as possible from the anguish of a Kafka. He is very much at peace within disorder. Nature's obstinate blindness probably irritates him, but it comforts him as well. Its irrationality is only a negative thing. The absurd man is a humanist. He knows only the good things of this world. End quote. We're in the 1940s now, World War II and Camus is part of the French Resistance. He's writing for newspapers, he lives in occupied France, and becomes the editor-in-chief of the newspaper Combat. He publishes more books in the 1940s, notably The Plague and The Fall, his two other novels. The Plague is one everyone is reading now because of its connection to our current pandemic, but it's also about the rise of Nazism and what it was like to witness that. In The Plague, a disease spreads across a coastal town. It starts slowly, spreads, and recedes, and the whole book is told from the point of view of one of the survivors. It talks about absurdity, but there's more passion here. That was Sartre's prediction. The stranger was committed to that laconic style, the Hemingway tight-lipped style, which served its purpose, but there was more to Camus. There was a longing to go on Melvillian flights, expounding philosophy, illuminating dark corners, spreading wings, and soaring toward the heavens. The plague ultimately concludes that there is more good in man than bad, but also that the plague is never gone. It's always there inside us. It's always ready to return, whether that's referring to rats who are ready to bring back the disease, or, as we see now, new diseases ready to devour us, or whether it's a human state of mind, the evil we can perpetrate, the greed, the malevolence, the sinister turns of the screw. We've seen them both these past few years here in America and we're not alone. But what does one do? What's the response to this bleak state of things? How do we resolve this central tension of a desire for meaning and a meaningless universe? Camus sees three possible philosophical responses. Only one of them works. The first possible philosophical response is suicide. Kill yourself and the pointlessness once and for all. 
he thinks this is cowardly. It's not a true revolt, and we haven't dug into revolt yet, but it's probably enough for now to say that revolt is the other passion of Camus' thought. Revolt is the rising up. Revolt is action. Revolt is heroic. Revolt is necessary. It's Sisyphus rising up heroically, performing his task, continuing even in the absence of hope or promise of progress. It's a way of dealing with absurdity. It's a way of dealing with any oppression, economic oppression, racism, Nazism, any other form of occupation or heaviness that threatens to squash the individual. It's not just pitchforks and torches. It's not just gathering weapons and meeting at the barricades. It's not just sitting on factory machines and shutting down production. It's internal, too, maybe internal above all. It's the attitude one can take. The second thing you can do, second possible philosophical response, is to turn to religion. Universe is meaningless? Ah, no, it's not. God is there. God is good. God has secret plans. God can provide a meaning, even if God is mysterious. Camus doesn't like this either. It's philosophical suicide, he says. It's just as cowardly. It's a metaphysical magic trick. The universe is pointless? Well, then, here you go. Here's an old man who lives in the sky and tells you that everything is going to be okay. For Camus, that doesn't work. That leaves him with the third choice, which is the form of revolt. The third choice is to accept absurdity, maybe even embrace it, and continue living. Full, eyes wide open, acceptance. Courageous acceptance. Make your peace with the state of the world. Life can be lived all the better if it has no meaning. It's better than killing yourself or numbing yourself with lies or myths. Live to the fullest. That's your way to rebel. It's the path for your revolt. Okay. The world is meaningless. Suicide might be one of the only logical responses, and yet it's not. Doesn't this sound like existentialism? And yet, Camus rejected that label. Maybe it was because he wasn't trying to write a systemic philosophy, which is how he viewed Sartre's project. He didn't care about the metaphysical or ontological aspects of Sartre, or at least he didn't himself write about things like that. He wrote about politics instead. He engaged with the issues of his day. And he didn't think that being precedes essence. That might be the one major philosophical distinction between him and the true existentialists. He thought there was a common human nature, a core of dignity and value. It was almost as if he didn't want to be as radical of a skeptic as Sartre. He didn't want to sh try to shed everything and build up from there. He was a writer not a philosopher, at least in that sense. But it's kind of splitting hairs, isn't it? You see a picture of Camus at the cafe with his movie star, good looks, with his cigarette, his dark flashing eyes, and you think, come on, existentialism is big enough for the both of you. Can't I just call you that? It's kind of like if you have two kids and they're both outside in the swimming pool behind your house and one of them is in the shallow end and says, hey, I'm walking around, my hair is dry, I'm not really swimming. It's nothing like what my brother's doing over there. And the other brother is in the deep end and says, Hey, I'm diving, my feet don't touch the ground, my hair is soaked, I'm flailing around just to stay afloat. It's nothing like what my brother's doing over there. And they're both sort of right. But if you're mom or dad and you're on the back porch watching them, you think, two different activities? Come on, guys, you're both in the same pool. That's how I view Camus and Sartre. They were reading Nietzsche and Faulkner and Melville and Kierkegaard, Augustine and Kant and Rousseau and Hemingway. They were finding their way through theaters and 
newspaper articles and communism. They were living through the rise and fall of the Third Reich and occupied France. They can tell us how different they were, but from our vantage point up on the back porch, they're at least in the same pool. We can dig into their differences if we want, and we can learn from those. We can also recognize their many similarities, and we can celebrate and learn from those too. Camus wrote a third novel called The Fall, and another major work we haven't mentioned yet, the book-length essay, The Rebel. Those five works are all worth reading. You can learn a lot reading about Camus. A lot of the politics have now faded away, as is always the case when writers from the past are deeply engaged with questions of the moment. But seeing Camus have to make difficult choices, sometimes very unpopular ones, is instructive. How does a communist deal with Stalin? How does a French-Algerian deal with the end of colonialism? Camus tried to take a humanist approach to both those questions, and he scrapped with his fellow intellectuals, and he fell out with them, but he stayed engaged. In retrospect, he was right some of the time and wrong some of the time, but it's hard to judge any of that with hindsight and to do so with fairness. When he won the Nobel Prize, he said, quote, The nobility of our craft will always be rooted in two commitments— both difficult to maintain, the refusal to lie about what one knows and the resistance to oppression, end quote. The refusal to lie about one, what one knows. That's absurdity in a nutshell and revolt too. The world is horrendous and the universe is indifferent. There is no hope. There's every reason to be cynical. Our condition as creatures desperate for meaning in this meaningless world is simply absurd. And yet, we move forward in trying to make progress, trying to engage, trying to be better. There is a way to revolt that isn't cynical. We can live for the goodness in humanity. We can aspire. go. That's going to do it for our look at Camus. My goodness, what a writer. How bleak and yet how inspiring. I feel better, and I hope you do too. My thanks to the French existentialists for loaning me Camus for the day. I'll return him now, and you can put him back on your shelves, except give him a little distance. Maybe put a few volumes of Proust in between you and him. I think that will make him happy. My thanks also to our emailers today, Joan and Elizabeth, and to all our emailers. Keep them coming, people. I can't always get to all of them. I try to respond. I can aspire. See? (laughs) I'm learning. (laughs) No need for cynicism, folks, even if that's the most natural instinct in the world. Stay safe and stay hopeful. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.